0: And so the Israelites are, are, are on the journey towards freedom and, and that's what we're examining. We're examining what does it mean to be free. And we've been looking, we looked at the Ten Commandments and we said that Commandments one through four, they teach us how to, and the Commandments five through ten teach us how to. And so what the Ten Commandments are, aren't so much of these there are rules, there are commandments, but what they are is they're a piece of God's heart. This is God saying, this is how you can know that you know me. I'm revealing myself to you so you know what it means to love me and to be loved by me. And what it means to love people and be loved by people. And God is continually shaping His the heart of his people and he's doing that by changing their external reality by changing their landscape by changing their atmosphere what he's doing the purpose of all of these changes and shifts in their lives is so that something in their heart could be transformed could be transformed And this is likewise with so many of us. When we enter into some form of a physical discipline, what needs to end up getting changed is our hearts. Because, for example, do any of you say like, all right, today I'm going to study. I'm going to just take eight hours and I'm going to study. Any of you? All right. How many of you follow through with that? All right. Why? Because it's a matter of the heart. That external reality has not changed your heart into a diligent student. What it's done is that external reality has made you into someone who knows how to watch Netflix for seven hours and at the last hour panic and say, I need to cram in this information because I have to take this test tomorrow. But God is bringing in some very strong external realities because he needs to transform the inner workings of Israel's own heart. And so today we're going to examine three things. The first is the sin of Israel, the problem that we have, and the solution, and the only solution. So first, the sin of Israel. Why did Israel sin? What was the context of their sin? Well, we're told that Moses went up Mount Sinai. And when he went up Mount Sinai, who did he go to meet? And what did God give him? Give him two things. Eric, well done. Ten commandments. What was the second thing? The other Ten Commandments. There's not 20. What, what's the second thing that Moses received on Mount Sinai? Oh, he did get to see that, but he actually received something else too. You know, this is crazy that, you know, some of y'all have been going to church your whole life. It's just like, it's just right here. And we're like, I don't know, what, what was it? He received the Ten Commandments, but he also received the outline for the temple. Because the temple is where who dwells. And so he was receiving an outline on how to build this temple where God would come and dwell, this temple that would later be built by King Solomon. And so, like we said, the Ten Commandments are an outline of God's heart. It shows you who God is, but the outline of the temple, it shows what it would look like to live with God, what it would look like to live as his people. What the outline of the temple shows, it shows how to connect with him. How to be with him. And don't you guys want that sometimes? Do you ever have that desire? Where like, I just wish people knew how I want to hang out. How I want to talk. How I want to be related to. I wish sometimes people would know that. I was talking to this guy the other day. And he's like, people think I'm socially awkward. But I'm not. I'm not socially awkward. I just don't have the same social cues and social flow as everyone else. It doesn't, and some people think that he hates them because they think like, he's like really quiet. So I don't hate you. I'm just like, my flow's different. And maybe you feel that way sometimes. I wish people knew how to relate to me, how to connect to me. Maybe you felt that about your parents. I just wish they knew how I want them to talk to me. Any of you ever have that desire? I wish my parents knew how to talk to me. That was like, I might as well gotten that tattooed on my head when I was growing up. Because that was my chief desire for my parents. I want you to know how to communicate with me. Why do we have those thoughts? Because when someone knows how to communicate with us, then they can build an honest relationship, a meaningful relationship, and a personal relationship with us. And God is giving the outline of the commandments of the temple to do just that. He's essentially saying to Israel, Man, I want you and I to be best friends. I want you and me to go at this forever. I love you guys. And I don't ever want things to change between us. I want this fiery love to just always exist. And I'm going to show you how to do that. But while Moses is on the mountain doing amazing things, Israel starts to complain. They start to complain. And I love, I love this scene, like this contrast, Moses is receiving from God what the Israelites need and the Israelites on the bottom of the mountain complaining, complaining that things aren't going well. You know, I was at another church um, way back when and it it was at a retreat and we got there, and we unloaded everything, and we we're about to get things started, and I just took some personal time just to pray. Um, I was praying for myself, uh, praying for the youth students, just praying for, you know, whatever. And after, like, I was finished praying, I was like, yes, like, the Spirit of God is here. I was so excited. I'm so looking forward to everything. And then I kind of step out of my room, and all I get hit with are complaints. Pastor Stephen. I'm hungry. Pastor Stephen, what are the games today? Pastor Stephen, I can't find my bag. Pastor Stephen, where's my sleeping bag? Pastor Stephen, I don't like my cabin. Pastor Stephen, who's my small group leader? Pastor Stephen, they spelled my name wrong on my name tag. And I'm like, you idolatrous people. Here I am praying for you. (laughs) And what you're doing is just complaining. And obviously, you know, I'm a sinful person too, and yada, yada, yada. But this is like that, but to the extreme. But you see, what is Israel complaining about? They're complaining that Moses and God are taking too long. Israel is not complaining as much as they are demanding. They're saying, why isn't Moses back? Why isn't God saying something? And in their demands, what we see is that Israel doesn't want to just replace God. They want a more convenient God. Can we say convenient? They want a God who can accommodate to their personal preferences. So for them, their problem is not the impulse to worship other gods. The problem is they want a more convenient version of God. And here's the problem. Back in the Old Testament, there were many gods. And we've talked about this before. If you were a farmer, you worship the God of the what? Of the harvest or sometimes the rain. If you were a fisherman, you worship the God of the? And if you loved, I don't know, raccoons, you worship the God of raccoons and trash animals, right? But the problem is God reveals himself as the one true God. But if there are many gods then that means the authority is spread out. And if the authority is spread out, you can pick and choose who you listen to. You can pick and choose who to abide to. And you and I know what this is like very well when we look at our parents. Typically with two parents, there's one that's really strict and one that's a little giving. And so let's say, for example, you want to sleep over at your friend's house. You already know which parent you should ask for that. Let's say you need $20. You know which parent you should be going to. Let's say you fail the test. You know that which parent is going to be a little bit more gracious with you. Why? Because the authority is spread out. It's spread out between two. So you can pick and choose who you go to. But here's God saying, you worship many gods, but I am the only God. I'm the only authority you submit to. But when you make multiple gods... What you're you're doing is you're diminishing my authority in your own life. Because you're saying, I want to pick and choose who I listen to and who I submit to based on what is convenient for me. But if there's only one God, that then that means there's only one authority figure for us to submit to. And this is Israel's struggle. And this is their sin. And it takes the form of a, a calf, a golden calf. Now, how is this golden calf made? The Israelites complain to Aaron and say, Moses taking too long. And I love Aaron. Like, he's freaking hilarious. Like, This is the same Aaron who was with Moses throughout the plagues, throughout the Red Sea, and through the wilderness. And the Israelites are like, hey, where's Moses? He's like, give me your gold earrings. I'll make a God. Like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be like second in command. Like, what's happened? And Aaron says, give me the gold earrings off of your wives, off of your sons, and off of your daughters. And it tells us that Aaron fashioned the God using a tool that this golden calf, this God that they established was made. What's the problem with that? The problem is if we can make God, then that means that God does not make us. If we make a God, It means that that God does not make us. And in doing so, that God does not have authority over our life. But in fact, we have authority over it. Over it. Essentially, what they have done is they have taken our God, who is a lion in his power, and made him into a cat. Into a cat. So watching this video, Of this guy who has a mountain lion in his apartment. You guys watch videos like that? I do. You know why? Because I'm waiting for it to go wrong. Just that one moment of just like when that mountain lion's like, screw this. I don't want this steak. I want like real live flesh. And that's why you shouldn't keep mountain lions as a pet. Why? Because mountain lions weren't meant to be pets. They're really cool. They're really awesome to look at. But they're not cuddly. They have sharp claws and very large canines. You know what's great about cats? Apart from the fact that there's nothing that great about cats. I'm just kidding. You know what's great about cats? They're cuddly. You can pick them up and throw them. When my wife and I had a cat Rangar, that would be like her thing. She'd just throw Rangar, Because Rangar would always land on her feet. And then she would take Rangar and like make her do backflips. Just like this all the time, just and just cuddly and nice and they purr up next to you. The difference between a mountain lion and a cat is a mountain lion you have to fear because you know it has a power that's far greater than yours. But a cat you can control. A cat's power you don't have to fear as much. That The benefits of that cat are all about your convenience and that's exactly what Israel has done in forming this golden calf. Created a God of convenience. But you and I, Even though that's Israel's sin, it's also ours. Because we love to fashion things. We love to fashion a God of convenience in our life. You know, when God introduces himself to Moses before all of this happens, he appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush. And in that place, what does God reveal to Moses? His name. His name. And his name is what? I am. I am who I am. Yahweh. I am who I am. God reveals his name to Moses. This, this, mist, this vapor, this dust. God reveals who he is to Moses because in that moment what he's saying is what I want with you Moses and telling you my name is a dynamic relationship. I don't just want something stagnant and stiff where like we're just like transactional just computer generating people. I want to know you and I want you to know me. I want something that's very intimate. And in relationships, if God wants what he desires from you and when he offers you as a relationship, then you have to recognize that if what you desire from the other person in a relationship, if what you desire is convenience, you are not looking for the great I am. You're looking for Alexa? You're looking for Siri? You're looking for whatever that weird Samsung version is? Bixby? Come on. Come on, Korea. We're better than that. Bixby. You're not looking for I am who I am. You're looking for, hey, Siri. What's the weather today? Hey, Alexa. Can you reorder that for me? Hey, Bixby. I don't know what you say to that thing. And do any of you have a relationship with Siri? If you do, come see me afterwards. You need some counseling. We don't. You know, the other day I was saying bye to someone. I think it was Stephen, And like he said bye. And then like Siri talked. And she's like, okay, bye. I'm like, I was shocked. I was shocked. I was like, oh my gosh. Like the Chinese are spying on me or something. Like what's going on? I was shocked. Why? Why? Because Siri should be under my control and for my convenience. She should speak when spoken to. She doesn't have any authority over my life. Why is she getting involved in my conversations? And oftentimes we want God to work like Siri. Hey, you talk when it's your turn. You talk when I need it. You talk when I need to hear you. But any other time, you keep your mouth shut and you stay out of my life. Stay out of my conversations. Stay out of my mind and my thoughts. I will call you when you are needed. What we have done is we have domesticated God. We've domesticated a lion into a cat. But intimate relationships, brothers and sisters, a truly intimate relationship, and think about this as marriage advice that you'll forget in 20 years, but maybe some of you remember it. Intimate relationships, they require a push and a pull, they require challenge. Oftentimes, we judge compatibility off of convenience. I want someone in my life who's going to let me do whatever I want. Let me tell you something that is the worst thing for you. That is the worst thing for you ever. What you need is an intimate partner who can challenge you, who can challenge you, call you out on your stupidity, call you out when you're in error, call you out when you are in sin. And that is who God reveals himself to be, but that's not who we want. We want to pick and choose. We want to pick and choose the attributes of God. We like a God who talks about loving us. We like a God who talks about forgiving us. But we don't like a God who talks about his wrath and his anger against sin. We love to hear that God loves me and I can always go back to him. But you also know that the Bible tells you that God abhors sin. He hates it. He hates it. We don't want to hear that. We don't. that it's unpleasant to us so we just want to take the nice parts of God I can come back to you whenever I want and what you're doing is you're making a golden calf you're making a golden calf you're fashioning a God who fits you and this brothers and sisters is idolatry this is idolatry taking something and elevating it above God Taking something that is good and loving it more than you love God. It is having things out of order. It's the things that you give your life to. Your offerings. Your time. And brothers and sisters, we are idol factories. Because we can make an idol out of anything. And we can make an idol out of anyone. Think about all the things that you and I place before God all the time. Think about how many times in our schedules God is just last place. Just the last thing on our mind. We'll get to it when we get to it. Think about that when we're overloaded, what do we drop first? We drop a relationship with him. We drop intimacy with him. We'll drop church before we drop anything else in our life. We'll drop our choir times before we drop anything else in our lives. He's always last place. And whatever's taking his place, that's the idol. If you find that the voice of your parents speaks louder to you than the voice of your God, you've made an idol out of your parents. If you find that the voice of college acceptance letters speaks louder than your God, you've made an idol. Out of college acceptance. If you find that your SAT score speaks louder to you than what God says about you, you've made an idol out of that score. But you know what the funny thing is? None of those things are bad things. Your parents aren't bad things. SAT, oh are debatable. Uh, College acceptance, those aren't bad things. But we make them. We make them. We fashion them into something evil and against us rather than for us. And the real crazy thing about the pursuit of idols is that that pursuit of that idol will end up destroying you, but you know what? It'll also end up destroying the thing that you idolize so much. I'll give you an example. Let's say I idolize Josh, and I just love him so much. All of my hopes, my dreams, are built into Joshua's song. And that means That I'm going to push Josh to be excellent in everything that he does. Anytime he gets a B, it'll be a reflection of my hopes and dreams. What do you mean it's above average? I want excellent. Anytime he drops the ball a little bit. Anytime he fails a little bit. It'll break down my fulfillment. Do you guys see what I'm saying here? What will eventually happen to this poor young man? He'll be overwhelmed and he'll be utterly destroyed by my expectations of him. So I have taken a perfectly good man and I've destroyed him. Because my expectations were just that big. But what happens to me? I'm left disappointed. And so what am I gonna do after Josh has done getting a 3.0 instead of a 4.0? I'm gonna move on. I'm gonna move on into the next best thing, Andrew Kwan. <laughs> And I'm gonna have the same set of expectations for him. Is he gonna meet them or is he gonna fail them? So I'm gonna drop him. I'm gonna move on to the next big thing, next best thing, Han. And on and on and on and gone. And what we do is we create paths of destruction because of the idolatry of our hearts. We will ruin relationships. We will ruin what was meant for good. We will use it for evil. And what we see at the heart of this, is that the problem with Israel and the problem with us is not that we love things too much. It's not that you love school too much. It's not that you love your family too much. It's not that you love your friends too much. It's that you and I love God too little. We just love him too little. And that's the heart of idolatry. Loving God too little and loving something else far more. But Moses... Moses does something interesting because God's like, hey, Moses, by the way, while you and I were just having this awesome moment and I was just sharing my law and the outline of the temple for these people to come and meet with me. Yeah, they've been doing some real dumb stuff. So I'm going to let you know what, Moses, I'm going to destroy them. My wrath will burn against Israel because they have sinned against me. While Moses is receiving something beautiful, they are betraying God. While while Moses is receiving something absolutely beautiful, they're betraying God. This is like if there was a wedding and after the ceremony, this beautiful ceremony, uh, you have to go get a wedding certificate. And that's like if this new husband, right after the wedding ceremony, on his way to the courthouse to get the wedding certificate, cheated on his wife. Just on the way over there. Like that's what this is like. And so what Happens. What is God to do? Well, let's look at what Moses does. Moses stands up. What we see about Moses and his relationship to Israel is that he is a mediator. He's an ambassador. Can we say ambassador? So God says, I'm going to destroy them. But Moses sought his favor. He said, please don't. Don't destroy your people. What is he doing? He's advocating on their behalf if you're an older sibling sometimes you will advocate on your younger siblings behalf or maybe if you're a younger sibling you advocate on your older siblings behalf hey mom don't go so hard on him he's having a rough day hey mom Be easier on her. She's having a rough day. What are you doing? You're being an ambassador. And he's saying, please relent. Essentially, Moses is operating as their counselor. And when we continue down the story, Moses goes so far as to tell God, God, take my life, spare theirs. I will offer my life if it means that you won't destroy theirs. Forgive them. And blot me out of your book. Take me instead. The ultimate sacrifice play. The ultimate sacrifice play. As you guys know, I often uh, play a game called League of Legends. And I like uh, champions that engage. So I like Jarvan, J4. And one day I was playing with Sam Go, And it was the two of us against the five of them. This is, and we were running. We were running for our lives. And it's like... Time slowed down for me (laughs) just for a moment. And I knew exactly what I had to do because I knew that they were going to catch us and kill us. And so I turned around and I engaged on them. And I said, Sam, run. And he said, Pastor Stephen. And then he ran. (laughs) I laid down my character's life. So that Sam could live. What I essentially told the enemy at that time was, take me instead. If it means that you'll spare Sam Go, and you'll spare Fizz. he did nothing wrong. Did nothing wrong. What Moses is saying is, I know God. I know that they tried to replace you. I know they don't love you. I know they made this idol. And I know they're trying to domesticate you. I know they're trying to abandon your love, but forgive them. Forgive them. And I'll put myself on the line as payment for their sins. And God responds in two ways. The first is he rejects Moses' offer. He essentially says, thanks, but no thanks. Why? Because Moses has his own problems. He has his own sin issues. In Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites are doing their favorite thing. And that is complaining. That's their favorite thing, complaining. They're complaining because they're thirsty. And so God tells Moses to take his staff, the staff that was stretched out across the Red Sea, and do what to a rock? Pang! And what would come out of the rock? Water. And it happens. And then later in Numbers chapter 20, there's a similar story. The people are complaining. And this time, God tells Moses to do what? Talk. I want you to go to the rock and speak to it. And water will come out. But Moses is so frustrated. He's so fed up with these complaining, demanding Israelites. What does he do? He strikes it. He strikes the rock. Essentially what Moses is saying is, I know how this works. I know that you told me to, you're told you telling me to speak to it. But I hit it before and it seemed to work. So I'm just going to hit it again out of my frustrations. What we see that is because of this sin, Moses is not allowed into the promised land. After everything that's happened, he has to die in order for the Israelites to cross over. The point is, Moses himself is guilty. And because he is guilty, he is unable to be a sacrifice for the Israelites. But the second thing that we see is that even though God refuses Moses' offer. He doesn't punish his people. He says, whoever sins against me, I will blot them out of the book. And when it comes time to punish them, I will punish them. And here's why. Because there is a better Moses to come. Someone who could be a true substitute and an appropriate one. Not a blemished one. But an unblemished one, not a guilty one, but an innocent one who would be blotted out on our behalf, giving himself and punished in our place. That though we are a wayward people, he will give himself for us. And what we see as we track throughout Exodus and get into the Gospels is that Jesus is the better Moses. He is the perfect substitute. He is the one who is blotted out from life so that you and I would not be. But here's what's interesting. When we look at the Bible, we see that Jesus was not created. He is the word became flesh, the word that was from the beginning. He was with God from the beginning, having the best relationship with the Father and the Spirit, just co-equal, co-eternal, glorifying and loving and serving one another since before time itself. He is co-equal with God. He was there in creation. He was there as God was placing the stars in the sky, forming the galaxies and breathing life into Adam's nostrils. What we see then is that Jesus is all powerful he is all good he is described as the lion of the tribe of judah he cannot be domesticated he cannot be tied down he has every right just as the father does but on the cross he is tied down and on the cross he is domesticated and here's why it's, this is so important for us to understand. And I have a short clip that might help get the point across. And we will just turn it on. It's one, one of my favorite book series and, and just a movie that I could just watch over and over again. Um, but I'll set this up for you. This is a, a scene from the Chronicles of Narnia. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's this figure, and his name is Aslan. And Aslan is a lion. And essentially, Aslan serves as Jesus in the story of the Chronicles of Narnia. He's an all-powerful lion who has come to redeem and restore all things. He is majestic. When he roars, trees tremble. He strikes fear into the hearts of his enemies. And all of a sudden, things take a turn for him. And so if we could get the clip going. What we see is that our Lord Jesus is majestic in all of his ways. Perfect, beautiful, and mighty. But on the cross, tied down, stripped of all his clothes, and hung there to shame. That someone who didn't deserve that got it. And that our Lord, who was there since the very beginning of time, who was involved in your creation and formation, who has the authority of the Father bestowed upon him, submitted himself to absolute obedience and humiliation on the cross, tied down, mocked, and scorned. And here's why this is so important, is that when you have this vision of God and who he is as he says he is, not as you think he might be, not as someone has told you he might be, but as he says he is. A God who is all-powerful and all-consuming and then looks at you and says, I am all about you, and my love is all about you. When you see that, when you come to recognize God as he is, what you'll start to see is that it has, it drives away the of idols and competing visions in your life that it is a god our god is a god who is glorious untamable majestic and free and such a god is worthy of all of our worship and adoration and yet he willingly chose to lay down his life for us because brothers and sisters if god is a supreme and all-powerful being you know he could be evil too that you could be supremely evil, supremely powerful and evil, supremely powerful and against you, but God says, I am not. I am supreme in my power, supreme in my authority, and I am for you. And when you recognize this God, it casts out the idols in our life. Brothers and sisters, repentance, repentance is never because you saw your sin first. Repentance is always because you saw his holiness first. You see his holiness, then you see your blemishes, and all of a sudden you're free to repent. Why? Because his holiness is not against you, but it's for you. And so you know that you are free to go to him because he already has first come to you. And in that place, you are free to repent of the things that have been depleting your life and submit to the one who is wanting to give you life. For the idols in our lives, they will always deprive us. But he is not in the business of depriving you. He is in the business of giving you true life. The problem with created gods is that they come from your imagination. They come from what you can think of. They come from what you can fashion. But here is a God, the God of the Bible, whose beauty and grace is beyond our imagination. This golden calf that the Israelites made, it was just a domesticated version of God. But why in the world would any of us settle for a domesticated, tameable version of God when we can have an untameable one who's just all about us? Amen? And so will you see him as he is? See him as he is and go to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you, that you would move us into a spirit of repentance. Move us, Lord, to see the idols in our life that try to push and pull and tug at us, that try to captivate our attention and are so often successful. But Lord, you are not created. You are not fashioned by men and by the minds of men. You are the holy uncreated one. And so, Lord, may we submit to your authority and your power and stop giving away our hearts to these things that we have fashioned, for these things that we have fashioned, and even us ourselves, we are temporary, but you, God, are eternal. And not only are you eternal, but you're in your eternal power, in your eternal beauty and majesty. You are for us and you love us, Lord. So we thank you, and in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.